0: Hey, you're listening to the Brutally Delicious podcast. I am the hostess with the mostest, Bruce. And
1: I'm Chris, and cilantro sucks. Oh,
0: <laughs> what the <laughs> fuck? We'll have to get into that another time because cilantro is one of my favorite things. But cilantro <laughs> and Gojira are not one of my favorite things. <laughs> uh, I don't even know. How long is that story? Is it longer than a minute? Oh, it's long, yeah? Oh, uh, yeah, we'll have to do that on, on Wednesday.
1: <laughs> it, it, it involves two events in my life. <laughs> two, two events, bad
0: events with cilantro?
1: Oh, God. Let me put it this way. When I eat cilantro, it's like a psychedelic drug. Oh, really? It's, yeah, I get so high off it. Oh. And it, took me, it took me years to figure out what caused it. Like you tripping out? Well, I, I guess. I don't know. I wow. don't remember what happens after I eat it. Wow. Mm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting.
0: Yeah, we'll have to get into that on Wednesday. But anyway, yeah, today we've yeah. got a uh, a great show. We've got Jeff from Annihilator. I know you know oh, him dude. from I know you know him from the boat and the open air jams and or open water jams or whatever they're called. So it'll be great.
1: Oh yeah, and, and Russ, uh, who was on one of our earlier podcasts, a good friend of mine, he used to play bass with Annihilator. Yeah. So so yeah, and um I can't wait to talk to him. The guy is like probably one of the best metal guitarists out there. And, you know, possibly even one of the most underrated guitar players in metal.
0: I think so. I think so for sure.
1: Like the new record, the guitars are, I've never heard guitars that tight in my life as I heard on the new record. Yeah, it's really good.
0: So if you want to hang on a second, let's go ahead and get him on one. Hey, Bruce. Hey, Jeff. How are you?
1: good sorry i'm late
0: everything's
2: backed up <laughs>
0: no that's fine it dropped me right into the middle of your conversation earlier so i didn't mean it. if i interrupted it i'm sorry
1: no no all
0: good hey chris are you there i'm here oh there's my partner chris
1: Hi, hey chris. how are you doing jeff
0: very good cool, how man. time is it there 10 30 well now 10 or something oh you are in the east coast yeah where are you at uh, England. <laughs> oh, you're in England today? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs>
1: yeah. More, Where are you
0: I'm in Virginia.
2: Uh, yeah, it was just, uh, I think I got Virginia, eh? Yeah. Awesome. yeah. No, I just uh, went vacation with my family to uh, Vancouver for a few weeks and then uh, hung out that uh, the famous Brian Adams Popstar Studio. So I had a good time there. It was a beautiful city and I used to live there for 18 years, so, uh. It was good seeing friends again and hanging out. But now it's back to uh, cold northern England.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm the same way. I lived in Vancouver for 20 years, and now I'm in Virginia. It's a bit warmer here than it is wow. in, in the summer. but uh, yeah.
0: yeah,
2: no bet.
1: Yeah, I said, it. Vancouver sure has changed. It was a completely different city when I went back last week. Yeah, it's, it's a different place, man. It, it, in the last 20 years, it's completely morphed from what I went when I moved out there when I was 18, I was like, yeah, it's so different. Yeah. That's cool. Places change. Um, yeah. I was actually, I was actually <laughs> listening to the record yesterday when um, when it was sent over for us, the pre release stuff. And um, let me just get my page open here. And the song came on and it blew my mind away, Psycho Ward. And oh, right. I I have to say this right away, it, it kind of has like this Van Halen I know it. it doesn't oh, yeah! It sounds like Van Halen, but it has that Van Halen kind of vibe. What, well, if you, that- if you were sitting, if you were sitting right
2: where I am right now, looking through my eyes, I'm sitting on the couch in my recording studio. There's uh, eleven Van Halen guitars, but four Van Halen guitar straps. I got a whole box full of Van Halen picks. <laughs> I've got. <laughs> I've got. My uh, my dust covers, you know, to cover up equipment in my studio, these racks of gear, are all Eddie Van Halen beach towels from his website. <laughs> um, oh, nice. And I, I collect, uh, you know, fuck music. I'm going to talk about the fun stuff. Um, yeah. I collect uh, Dallas. Uh, you remember J.R. Ewing Dallas from the 70s yeah. to the 90s? Oh, yeah. That I collect rare stuff like signatures from all the people living and dead from that show and and coffee mugs and shirts, which are hard to find. And I collect uh, Van Halen paraphernalia and guitars and also Coca-Cola. So I've got the most addictive, expensive hobby in the world because Coca-Cola is probably the most collectible. It's got the most collectible things out there. I think if you search on eBay, there's like uh 68 million uh Coca-Cola items on eBay.
0: <laughs> right, so you could go, you could go down a rabbit hole really quick then. Yeah, I
2: have. I mean, I the only good thing I, I surprised my dad years ago cuz he was always he was always really you know, a very smart and educated guy, very good with finance. He would he knows how to invest and save and work hard and good morals and everything. And I learned at least if I didn't learn to be like him, at least I learned from him that if I'm going to be rude or cheat or steal or be an asshole, I should feel guilty doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, he, um, he was kind of shocked because he, he came in, uh, to my place years ago and said, well, what, you don't have any mutual funds. And I, I looked at him and sort of sarcastically kind of said, half not knowing and half uh, knowing a bit, um, what are mutual funds, dad? <laughs> so, I mean, And I was, in, I was in my, I was in my forties at that point. Um, so, um, uh, he was, he was kind of shocked, and, and then I walked him over to my guitars on, on the rack of my studio, and I had a fairly big collection. It was a triple-digit collection um, before I moved to England, and uh, I, I said, Dad, uh, pick a guitar. Put your finger, point to a guitar, and he pointed to this, I think it was a Diablo SG, and he goes, well, how much is that worth? And I said, Ooh, I think I got it for free from Gibson. I think it's twenty. Is it twenty thousand or twenty five? You know. And then he looks at me like that guitar's worth that much. You could buy a little car. And then he put his finger on this one called uh, Fender uh, Replica EVH Frankenstrat, and that's the famous guitar Eddie Van Halen's kind of known, the most famous one he's known for. And Fender did a limited edition three hundred run, I think, two thousand seven. Or 2010, one of those years of 300 of those, and they would sell for 25,000 US. So, of course, I got one, and um, the it was was said to me. And this is really this is remember Eddie Van Halen is like my god, um, along with Angus Young and Glenn Tipton. Um, so, to say this from a completely not nice standpoint, just sort of pulling back from that fact, the inhumane fact is that that guitar, those things, will double, triple, quadruple in price at some point, let's just say it politely, when he passes on to guitar heaven, right?
0: Right. And there's um, your mutual funds.
2: So ex- yeah, I explained that to my dad, and he looked at me and said, that could be worth seventy-five or or $100,000. And I looked at him and said, yeah. And so my dad finally shut up about investing in money and didn't worry about what going on. <laughs> nice. <laughs> He's like, I did good, son. I did good, you learned. <laughs> yeah. You know, and a lot of people will come into my studio or they'll see the guitar stuff and they'll see the gear and they'll go... And of course, I use that. I let people know. You're in the music business. I mean, I'm in the music business and I want people to come to my studio and I like working with other people. And and so you, you, you show it off a bit, right? I mean, you try not to be too much of a jerk about it, but you, you make sure when you're taking pictures sometimes that you show the cool thing in the background. You know what I mean? Like just oh, yeah. The, it, just help, it just helps you out. And it's like... The thing is... You know, some people get that I'm 54 years old and that I've been playing guitar since seven, um, and seriously playing since I was like 13 in lessons, classical lessons, and then all of a sudden, quote, professionally in 1989, and um, and guitar companies would, would send me guitars and I wouldn't even be signed to anybody and they'd just give me guitars and I'd say, well, if I don't like it, I'll have to send it back, and they'd say, "No, no, no, just take these two guitars." And if you don't like it, I mean, if you're not too great, just keep them, you know. And, and they had a certain budget where they could all these, you know, fifty guitar companies could send out free guitars to the James Hetfields and the, you know, the Jimmy Pages to try to to get them to use their their equipment and guitars. Right. And I would just sort of I thought, okay, I'm not signing to a, uh, an endorsement deal because people, all the companies are sending me stuff.
1: <laughs> you know what I
2: mean. <laughs> Well, I was like, okay, um, and it's like a mechanic. When you're, if you're working as a professional mechanic, let's say you're working on Porsches or you're working on some kind of fancy cars or just, you know, general good lifelong career mechanic. Well, those red, uh, drawer units they have can contain, you know, $75,000, $100,000 worth of tools, you know, so it's like, um, a lot of people go well. You know, why do you need this stuff? And I go, "Well, I don't, but it's my job. These are my
0: tools."
1: <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> right. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah,
2: I, didn't, I didn't pay for all of them. So, but uh, I'm getting sidetracked because I got ADHD and I love it. Go ahead.
0: No, that's uh, we like talking about everything, so that's great.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, this podcast that we do is is uh, we try to have casual conversations instead of asking the same old, same old questions all the time. So, it's yeah, awesome I'm, I'm kind of getting bored. Right. I get. I'm, it's really boring talking about
2: that set. But I will go into Psycho Ward. Now that you brought it up, that is a very reminiscent of that song Stonewall we had on our second record called Never Neverland. Um, and that was completely intentional. I, I liked the format or the the fact that that song we did was kind of like a big hit in Germany. And it you got on MTV and uh, in the States on kind of regular rotation in 1990, and it was like, why'd that one get on there? It's kind of like a poppy, commercially fun vibes to it and and the video had us on the edge of a really nice you know Albert Lake in uh, Golden Years Park in Maple Ridge in BC in Canada um and it's a beautiful beautiful setting for the uh for the video but um I liked the way that song was put together because the the verses were uh like a, a commercially Exodus Gary Holt type and Rick Ablt and riff right and then the the pre the pre-chorus where there's two lines being sung by the singer is more like a white snakey vibe. And then the chorus goes into, that's the way I want to rock and roll by ACDC. So it's like I managed, I liked it because it was really sneaky. It was like not intentional, but I realized looking back on it, man, you got Exodus, white snake and ACDC in the three parts of the song and everybody's loving this tune. And I don't think people understood hey, break that down. Look where this came from. It's awesome. <laughs> you know what yeah. you know? So I, I I kind of ripped myself off, so to speak, on that song, but knowing that, that I, I only want to rip the spirit off. I'm not going to go note for note. and I, I can at least be a little more original. And But I, I sure made a lot of the fans in Europe, and the any old schoolers that remember us from North America, uh, go, hey, that's a familiar song, you know?
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Well, I only discovered Annihilator, um, when I met Russ Burquist, um, ah. and and on I didn't actually really get to know Annihilator until I saw you on Seventy Thousand Tons of Metal.
0: Yeah, that was me too. I,
1: it, right it, it, in in twenty eleven. So I'm I'm not yeah. very familiar. Like I remember Alice in Hell growing up, obviously. Um, but uh, you know, when I heard Second War you yesterday, shouldn't... I just What's that you, you, you kind of shouldn't be familiar with it because. Um
2: you know for it depends on your age but if you're like an old old school let's say you're 45 or 50 years say 50 years old whatever um you know metal fans were kind of told by the industry in 1992 93 when you know you know Nirvana Pearl Jam Soundgarden all that stuff came in not Soundgarden but they were still pretty damn heavy for the time um yeah. when that Seattle scene and music changed in 1992 93ish labels the big labels were literally sending memos out saying that anything with the word heavy metal or thrash metal in your biographies, and your band rosters, get rid of them unless they're selling big numbers. And there was literally, because people didn't know this back then, and there was no internet at the time, and this is so far long ago that newer fans might find this cool if they believe me. um, (laughs) It was a clean sweep of most all, all heavy metal bands. It was like considered a joke. It was like, it wasn't the fault of the hair bands, but you know when you had the cherry pie and the, the, you know, uh, you had you had this sort of A-level, you know, i, I got to say A-level, Poison Rat, uh, Motley Crue. You had all the, the sort of hair bands
3: that were the good ones.
2: And then you had huge run of the imitators came out, the real cheap copies of them. And right. that was kind of almost the final straw that sort of, I thought, broke it and made everybody go, okay, it's time for this massive... Number two biggest selling uh, industry genre in the world. It's time for it to cycle out now, go away, and maybe come back later. But we don't want it now. And that's what happened. It all got taken out. And a lot of metal touring in North America was based on bands. Uh, the smaller levels and medium levels was, was actually based on playing some cool clubs. And they were also attached to strip bars. Well, when when that kind of music left, so did the strippers and so did the, so did the <laughs> venues for the band. You know, and it, 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 you know, it it really, it it took, like, forget it. So new bands didn't have a place to start in this kind of music. There was no opening for them to really do it. Um, And therefore, the whole day, I'm going to babble. This is awesome.
1: (laughs) No, please babble.
2: Uh, Unless you can, And then what happened is, you know, there's, like, bands were losing record deals immediately. We got kicked off a Roadrunner on a third album. We bumped up to Sony at that point, but... Uh, because that clean sweep went out. Um, at least, at least we had in the early nineties, we had, you know, painkiller, rust in peace. We had, well, for annihilator was never, Neverland, And we had some great stuff at the end of that particular era, but literally that was it. You were being told to cut your hair and get a real job or sound like Sepultura biohazard or Pantera was the exact quote from my A&R guy is, other oh, wow. than that, just get a real, you know, your career's done. And, uh, I joke with that particular A&R guy that everybody knows, um, I joke about it once in a while because um, six months after we were dropped from Roadrunner, I signed the biggest uh, the biggest deal I'd ever would have for the rest of my career, and it was uh, it was like the kind of thing where you were told your career's over. Six months later, you've got this. You've never had to manage money before because when I was a Roadrunner, the manager and I guess the manager and label made all the money, basically. Let's put it that way, without getting detailed. Um, so all of a sudden, I was told my deal was done. The career was done. I didn't want to, you know, start a band, change the name, and and jump on the okay. Let's try to jump to a different type of music that's going to be popular. Uh, and I was kind of bummed out, depressed. And then all of a sudden, I literally had, at that point, I won't say the money, but it was it bought a house, built a recording studio, bought two cars, and could go on vacation anytime I wanted. So that was kind Lock. of like handed handed to me when I knew nothing about money. Um, and I got very lucky and built the studio, and that was the only thing that saved me from going under all my life. Is that I'd had this studio, so I no longer had to pay, borrow money to pay a, a studio, money to make a record. All of a sudden, I had everything. I just walk in there with a cup of coffee and relax and make a record. Um, so anyway, I could go on. I've totally lost where I was going with this, but <laughs> it just became, it it became for me with with my band specifically. Uh, I just said, well, if Canada, I'm my home country, and the States don't want this kind of music, Well, then, and they definitely don't want me, then this Music for Nations company in London and the Japanese company that signed these deals with me and the, the big publishing company, uh, they want me, let's do it. You know. So I was like, hey, I do have a career, let's go. And I, I went on and put an album out called King of the Kill that was literally a number two biggest record in, for example, in Japan. Bon Jovi was the only band bigger for that six months. And we would have three singles on the radio. And you, you go to shopping malls all over Japan, and they'd be playing our music in shopping malls. It, and it was just—it's it like—and then I go back to you know talking to my friends in Canada, and they go, "So, are, you know, are you working for a video game company now? Or are you? What are you doing?" And I go, "No, I'm still touring. I still do albums." Um, and that's the way it continued for years and years and years. And when I finally wanted saw metal coming back, I finally. Said okay, now it's time to bring an eyelid back because we we had a lot of we've been having a lot of success from day one in Europe. Um, I guess and there's no rush, no pressure, no money issues to you know have to get deals just to survive over here. And I thought okay, a little bit cocky, I came back years ago and thought okay, I'll just come in and. A few of my friends are in some pretty awesome and big bands that offered to take us on tour to give us a restart there, and and the labels all turned me down. Every last one of them turned me down and said, and for good reason. Uh, they said, A, you're not a you're not a new band. Okay. Right. B, you're considered an older band. C, having you quote come back to the United States and Canada would be great if you were previously a huge band, but you're not. And you weren't. We we were. We did well for the first two records, but we weren't selling millions. We weren't at the Megadeth level or the Slayer level. We were right. we were at the Testament level at that point. Um, so then I. It was a, the harsh reality that if you give up on a territory or a continent or whatever it is, and you say, Ah, I can go somewhere else and make a living and and make my music and have fun, because uh, they want us over there. Uh, that don't ever expect that they're ever going to open their arms. The industry will, will welcome you back. And that's exactly what happened. And bands are going, why don't you play here? Why don't you tour here? Why don't you do this? Come on, you got money. Why don't you just go back and get in a couple of bands or a bus and tour? Well, the fact is I had two of the big four bands ask me to go and to the States with them to, to help me out. And I, I would jump in for joy going, yes, you know. I'll do it, blah, 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 and I'd even put my own money in, pay the crew, pay my band, pay for the bus, and, you know, you scale down and just, just do this to get to get to the fans that still know us there. And literally, the bands and their agents, the bands would come back to me and go, listen, I'm sorry, but our manager and our tour agent said, unless you have a proper record deal here in the States, we can't take you. Really? And, uh, wow. Well, it makes sense. I mean, I could technically go and try myself. To, I would go, and I've done this a few times, you put it out there to get a U.S. tour agency or a Canadian tour agency to to pitch a tour. Well, where do you where do you think we're going to be playing? The, the, since we don't have a track record there, it's not like some fans would think we're going to walk into these 2,000 seaters and sell out and everybody's going to know us. You have to be promoted for that to happen. And, yeah. And in order, to, you know, so nobody's going to gamble on a band coming back first time in 30 years uh, or 20, whatever it would be. And you'd be playing the, the smaller clubs, which there's nothing wrong with. And we do that sometimes in Europe. Sometimes we do it for a free fan show. Or there's a couple of countries where we literally play to 400 people, which I know it sounds like a good thing to some people, but we're, we're actually used to playing to a lot of people right. overseas. So I would get, I'd get down and just do this in the States and Canada for just to do it. But you got a problem there because... You got to pay everybody. I I hire my musicians. They're not band members. They're they're hired, and yeah. you got to pay for coup, You got to pay for that. And then some would argue, well, then who cares? Pays the money and make your fans happy. Well, you got no promotion. The the you're you're barely going to get a shower. You're gonna have, you know it's a big fucking pain in the ass for something that nobody wants except the hardcore fans.
1: Right. Yeah, and you're just driving around sense. in a van sleeping in
2: each other's underwear. Yeah. And losing money. Yeah. and... Yeah, and, and you know what, if I, I tell you, I, there's part of me that goes, hey, stop being a friggin' diva and just put the money in and do it. But I, I just don't feel that, I just don't feel morally that I should have to plop in fifty to $75,000 to either rent two vans or get a cheap tour bus to go down there to play for promoters that are clearly going to rip us off and not promote and not pay. Right. Well, what the hell's the point? Like you know what I mean, right? So, oh, yeah. but yeah, it's a, it's a different thing on the other side. When you, I mean, from my side, if you see it, um, actually, I, I I made an incorrect comment. Three of the big four have offered over the last fifteen years to bring us down there, and they thought that would help me out, and I totally appreciate it. And I was jumping to talk to every single label down there, and I did, and uh, that was it. it. They they just wouldn't sign it, so I, I gave up a second time. Wow,
1: that sucks. <laughs> So I'm going to change topics here. So you were talking earlier, you were using your own recording studio. Now, when you started it up, were you working on tape or were you working on like early computers? Like how, how did that start for you?
2: Yeah. The first, the first annihilator demos. Okay. That's the only way I can associate tape with me is back in the demo days, which was late 84 with annihilator when we started, I think December 84. Um, the demos I did were on this thing. A uh, company called Fostex made, and Tascam too. But Fostex made this cassette four-track machine, and <laughs> it was basically just look at that. Yeah, four-track, and that was act- amazing because I was kind of by myself writing music and playing all the instruments and doing this stuff. I'd take a crappy microphone and sing on it and all that, and that little four-track was the basis for me being be interested in studio work and equipment and geeking out on that stuff and how things are recorded and albums are recorded and made um, so that was a career I could have I could have got I could have diverted over to being I think an engineer and then eventually I think a mix engineer would have been my strong point um, but I, it didn't pull me that far I thought why can't I do all of this and that's kind of how I ended up doing this band which was uh, let me do everything I can do including booking the band at summer festivals, managing, Looking after the, the the money side, writing almost everything there is to write, producing it all, playing the bass on every single Annihilator song on every album except three songs. I, be, I was reminded of by Russ Burquist, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Russ, reminded yeah. you of that? <laughs> yeah, no, no, he did. He was he was right. I'm glad he corrected me because oh, I've been going around for years. Playing, I played, I played play all the bass on all the Annihilator records, and he goes, "Actually, I played a song on the Waking the Fury album, Jeff." And I'm like, oh, you're right. Shit. Sorry about that.
1: You, <laughs> um, said it, you, you uh, actually just said it exactly the exact way he talks. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm kidding, dude. He can talk.
0: Oh, it's awesome, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> wow, we didn't even talk about
1: the record once. No. I, I brought it up, and he just was like, fuck this. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow. What a nice guy.
1: Oh yeah, such a nice guy. Like, what an open book. Like, yeah, he told me, "Fuck off." I'm never getting a record deal again. And then I made so much fucking money. I bought a house, two cars, a fucking recording studio, going on vacations. Fuck that guy. That was great. Yeah, man. Just so you know, if you buy a house where he bought a house in White Rock, like if he bought that, if he bought that in the nineties, he probably bought it for like three hundred thousand, two hundred thousand. It's it's probably now worth like five million dollars. Really. Yeah. So, well, whether he sold it or not, I don't know. But
0: yeah, what, that was definitely one of the uh, the better interviews. That was great. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't even get a word no. in. You you got no. some you got some things in, and then he would just go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On the flip side, though, I super appreciate that because we've had the conversations where you get the one word answers or the dude stolen and can't speak or whatever. So that is
1: beautiful. Who like that one guy we had? <laughs> I not so know. What to like, say. how do you guys stay a band? I don't know. <laughs> like, how do you work across the internet? Email. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was great.
3: All right. What is up? It is Patos back again with his pick of the day right here on the Brutally Delicious Podcast. When you get to examine the growth of an artist. Over a couple of decades from an influential second wave black metal band to what you have here now with Isan's latest EP, Telemark, out on Nuclear Blast this past February 14th. It's so interesting and really satisfying to see the growth of an artist. Isan has really done that over the years to go from being known as the front man of a black metal band to a Norwegian composer is something not many people have been able to accomplish. But we really see the kind of artistic genius that he exhibits through these songs. The song you hear underneath me now is titled Telemark. A couple things I noticed right off the bat, there's a lot of dynamics in the song. It's not just straight to the top, hit you in the face for four or five minutes. It takes you on a journey, it tells you a story. There's progressive and folk elements and almost this classic rock sensibility to it. But trust me, it doesn't stay right there. The black metal vocals come in and it truly does become a heavy experience. One thing I like about the overall mix of this song, there is a lot of room to breathe. You can hear all the individual elements going on and there is a lot going on in this track. This is definitely an EP that I would highly suggest you head over to Nuclear Blast website, pick up the digipack or the vinyl for the ultimate listening experience. So be sure to head on over there and pick up some awesome merchandise and support the artist. And until next time, with his pick of the day, this is Pathos on the Brutally Delicious Podcast.